Good morning. Welcome to the Daniel Wortman Show. Coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call and all time zones in between. Welcome into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Monday morning, June the 3rd. It was a big weekend, and we have a big day today. Uh, packed show. UEFA Champions League final on Saturday. I've talked about it a bunch on this show. Barca are my absolute number one favorite club in the world, but Liverpool is a close second, and uh, it broke my heart when Liverpool pulled off the uh, the improbable comeback uh, that day, but I was definitely rooting for them this past Saturday, and uh, we will get to that in just a second. What happened to the 2-0 win, sixth trophy, sixth European Cup for Liverpool Football Club. Um Today on the show, we have Hope Solo coming up here in just a few minutes. If you're new to the show, basically the format is we kind of talk about all kinds of subjects in, involved related to the game of soccer in the U.S., but also around the world. And uh, we look forward to, to getting into a, a host of topics with Hope coming up here in just a few minutes. The, uh, the the game Saturday was a snooze fest in terms of beautiful soccer. I mean, let's just call it what it was. It was not a um, it was not a beautiful game. It was not entertaining uh, from the standpoint of hoping to tune in and watch some high level soccer. If you if you paid attention to the drama in the semifinals between Liverpool, Barcelona, Ajax, and Tottenham, and you were expecting Liverpool and Tottenham to have a dramatic match in in, in similar ways that they, that they competed head-to-head in the Premier League this year, that didn't happen. Uh, it was, it was a, a penalty in the first 30 seconds, but I don't really think, a lot of people said that, that, they thought that changed. You can't plan for that. That you can't, that changed the game. That that was going to somehow uh, that somehow affected the remaining ninety minutes. That Liverpool can't plan for that, and therefore kind of put them out of whack. And then Tottenham can't plan for that, and 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 they just couldn't get back into it. Both of these teams dealt with drama. Both of these teams dealt with mountains to climb, multiple goal deficits that they had to get back. Tottenham being down after the first minute or so, one to zero off of a penalty, and in having not essentially ninety minutes to get it back, I, I just don't buy that as the reason why Tottenham were out of sorts or why Liverpool were out of sorts. Now, did it maybe for for a few minutes? Was there a little bit of a buzz? Was there a little bit uh, of some nerves and butterflies? Certainly. Now, did it affect a few players uh, on the field? I think so. I think both of the outside backs for Liverpool, Trent Alexander-Arnold, as well as Andy Robertson, I think they both lost their composure a little bit in, in terms of just staying calm on the ball. They just it, it, it almost felt like in the few minutes after the goal that and really, maybe for those two players particularly, kind of going through a lot of the first half, 
they're almost losing their nerve. Anytime they got the ball, they were just wanting to kick it out or kick it long, get away, get it away from me rather than just taking a deep breath and calming down. They seem to do that more and more getting into the second half, uh, those two players. But the rest of the team, I didn't I didn't get that sense of of unease. You know, I'm sure there's a, there's a lot of thoughts going through your head. I mean, you're up one to zero. You weren't expecting it to come that quick, but regardless, I don't think Liverpool lost their nerve for for the the 90 minutes and just couldn't handle it. And, and I also think the same about Tottenham. What I think uh, happened on Saturday was that Jurgen Klopp decided to give Tottenham possession. And basically dare them to break Liverpool down. He, he, he made the tactical bet that Tottenham would struggle to break Liverpool down in and around the 18-yard box. We'll give you possession in the center of the pitch. We're going to drop back. If you come into these spots, we're going to pressure you. And you saw that time and time again, Tottenham would keep possession and they would recycle possession. They'd play back to their goalkeeper over and over and over again and and we're not finding many opportunities to get dangerous. Now, on the, the flip side of that, Pochettino, to me, made a major tactical error uh, and that was starting Harry Kane. Harry Kane has not played in, in three months. Um, Harry Kane, I, I get that you know he's your captain, and 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 you think okay if he's he's fit and he's ready, we're, we're going to play him from the start. But you played him at the expense of Lucas Moura, and and Lucas Moura not only did he have the hat trick that got you to the finals, but Lucas Moura is a player that has pace. None of the four players in Tottenham's front attacking players of their of their four two three one have pace. The, the four that Pochettino started. So there was not any player that was going to going to give Liverpool worries if they were able to get on the ball. Lucas Moura would have done that. And, uh, and, and Lucas Moura, you know, when he did come in later in the game, Tottenham started to get some chances in and around the box. Liverpool were having to account for him. He was finding spaces you know, in the 18, able to get a shot off. Uh, it wasn't a great shot, but I just have to think that if, if Pochettino would have played Lucas Mora from the start, had, uh, had, had Harry Kane on the bench as an option to come in later, I think Tottenham probably would have had better rhythm, even if they'd have gone down a goal in the, in the first, you know, minutes, moments of the game. I think Tottenham would have had a better opportunity to to even that score or score multiple goals. Harry Kane was not going to provide that pace, and none of the other three that were in that group of four up top were going to, you know, provide that that pace either. And I and I think I think they suffered for it. And it was a little too little too late. Uh, Liverpool had chances uh, as well, and you know weren't able to to get any of them to stick until Divock Origi's, um uh, second goal, of the, uh, his first goal of the match, second goal for Liverpool, 
um, as the as the match was kind of coming to a close, and that basically iced it. I mean, you could see Tottenham players; they were fighting to get that that equalizer. And once that second goal went in, they knew it was over. Two to zero, Liverpool won the uh, UEFA Champions League, sixth European Cup, and uh, first since two thousand five. It was, it was a, it was a a big night of relief for the Liverpool players, the coaching staff. Jurgen Klopp, he talked a little bit about it uh, after the match and some uh, post game press conferences and interviews. You could see the team when they celebrated as a with a parade through the city yesterday. Uh, you could see that they were really enjoying themselves. It's like a big load was off their shoulders. They had they had a, a had an incredible season. Finished one point um, from winning the Premier League, and and that one point from winning the Premier League, ninety seven points. I mean, in in most years would have won the Premier League. That's how good the season. I mean. You could sit here and say, well, they didn't win the league, and you're absolutely right, and you, and you cannot take that away from Man City. But at the same time, you have to acknowledge the season Liverpool had, and for them to be able to fight back, take out Barcelona in the improbable comeback in the Champions League semifinals to reach the final and get a trophy, get some hardware to cap off this really, really good season um, – was remarkable for this this group this squad and this coaching staff you can see if if you follow Liverpool at all you can see that this project is a project it there is intentionality to it you can you can see a methodology to it you can see you know calm heads level heads um and and the the same ownership group that owns the Boston Red Sox that owns the Liverpool Football Club, they have a way about going about things. Like they they have a way that they do things, and and you could see that that as an ownership, um, they put faith in the right people. They hired they hired good people. They got, in my view, the 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 greatest man manager in the world. Um, you could argue he's the second greatest manager in the world right now, behind Pep Guardiola. In Jurgen Klopp, um, no one gives a better interview than that guy, and um, he is definitely on my my list of interviews. I really want to have guests. I really want to have on the show, and and uh, I'll keep keep my fingers crossed that maybe one day I can get him on. But uh, he uh, he's made a massive difference, and uh, so credit to them, kudos to them, uh, congratulations to the Liverpool Football Club winners of the UEFA Champions League in the 2018-19 season. And uh, I know that their sights are going to be set on winning it all next year in the Premier League and, and probably multiple competitions, including getting to back to Istanbul in the final next year. Uh, long way to go, but um, congratulations to them. Look, we have a new sponsor for the show, and uh, we are really excited about this sponsor, and uh, it is Dut Kick Brand. We had on Tiffany Weimer a couple weeks ago, and um, you know she is one of the co-founders of Dut Kick Brand, and it is it is a really cool company. It's a really cool brand. If you if you haven't uh, come in contact with them, you haven't experience their products check them out at dutkickbrand.com d-u-t-k-i-g brand.com 
uh, to to learn more about their their products, their journals, their soccer specific uh, journals. They have waterproof journals. They they have T-shirts. They have the works. Go check them out. And if you use promo code DW Show, DW Show. When you go uh, to check out, you'll get 10% off your order and at the same time support this show. So check them out at Duck Kick Brand. We will be uh, back here in in just um, a a few minutes with Hope Solo. And uh, we are really excited to have her on and talk to her as she gets ready to head over for uh, coverage of the World Cup coming up in 2019. So stay tuned. We will be right back. Welcome back into the show. Thanks for tuning in this Monday morning, June the 3rd. Uh, we are really excited to have joining us on the show, Hope Solo. Hope, welcome to the show. Thank you, Daniel. It's good to be here. Thanks for coming on. Uh, it, it, it has been a while. We, uh, we, we did a lot of uh, meeting and greeting and talking uh, a, little, a little over a year ago uh, as you were... Uh, running for president of u.s soccer and i was running eric winalda's campaign for president of u.s soccer and uh i i want to say uh, before we get into anything else uh that the speech you gave at the u.s soccer agm 2018 in orlando florida has to be the best speech ever given at a u.s soccer agm um <laughs> I, I think uh I, on the anniversary of that speech i think i uh, i cut up the uh video clips of that speech and and send it out again on social media because i felt like it was something everybody needed to watch it was uh it was really good um and you had some really poignant things to say so i just wanted to say that that was incredible and uh it was a it was a great uh, well, speech thank you you know the election feels like a lifetime ago i can't believe it was only a year ago it's, My goodness. I mean, it was crazy uh it was a, it was a yeah. whirlwind um i still get a lot of questions a lot of fascination behind the scenes and uh We'll have to have you back on to kind of uh, go. I would love to do that to get with you and, and talk we through have some a of the, lot of stories, a lot share. of stories to share for sure. Um, <laughs> but but on a on a bigger level, um, 
for 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 the purposes of today, I want to ask you. Uh, before we get into to your coverage of the World World Cup coming up and and you know the um, legal uh, process that you're involved in, what inspired you to run for president of U.S. Soccer uh, back in 2018? Yeah, so as you are well aware, I was the last candidate to enter the race. I think I only had about two months to campaign and. Most of the voting delegates had already, you know, secured who who they were going to vote for. So I put myself in a a very difficult position. But for so long, I had been trying to fight for things, fight for for positive change from the outside as a player. And when I thought about the chance to be able to affect it from the inside, I felt like I had to at least try. And I knew from the very onset that I was not going to win this, this election. I, I, I absolutely knew that. But I knew that my voice had to be heard. I knew that these issues had to be raised. And what I saw with the candidates, with many of the candidates, um, it, it was very political. You know, you wanted to say the right things at the right time. You wanted to, to uh, you know, be very politically correct. And, and even with some of the change candidates, it was, it was kind of um, a hard balance to play. So I wanted to go in and I just wanted to be honest and direct. And I wanted to give after, after I spoke to many of the state association presidents and I spoke to, to, you know, I spent hours on the phone with many of the voting delegates. I realized so many people want change, just nobody knows how to go about it. And so after I gave that speech that you were talking about, I received a, a standing ovation and I was quite frankly, I was in shock, but it's because people wanted to hear the truth. People didn't want to see you know, candidates back down to U.S. soccer. And, you know, to this day, I'm very proud of that moment. Um, I know that my voice was heard. Now, whether any changes have been made, um, we still have a long, long road to go. But it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, I'm not really one, despite what people think. Um, I tend to be pretty introverted, uh, pretty shy. So I'm not really one to get up on the podium and, and do something like I did. Um, but it was it was a very important moment because I think people needed to hear all of the issues within U.S. soccer and within soccer in this country. Certainly, and I, I was definitely I will I will proudly admit I was one in the back uh, in the kind of general admission viewing area um, who was was on my feet uh, with most everyone in the room. Uh, you're not exaggerating for the audience, uh, the, the standing ovation. It wasn't, it wasn't just a handful of us. The entire room was applauding. And, and I thought it was a, it was, it was a, it was a big moment. It was a good moment. Um, and the reason why I wanted to start off our interview today with that moment and that, that running for president in the first place, because I really want to get down to, why you you do what you do in terms of pursuing justice um, in in U.S. soccer? Uh, you you not only you know put your neck on the line and you ran for president. You knew it was a, an uphill climb. Uh, I know behind the scenes, uh, talking with you and and Melinda and, and 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 others that you know you wanted to get a message across. You wanted to get a point across. You knew you were facing an uphill battle. Uh, but you had some things that you wanted to say, some things you wanted to share, and you were standing on principle. And I think that's a, that's a really you know key point that that the public needs to to know, which is 
leading me to this, why you have now continued that uh, work towards justice in U.S. soccer with your discrimination suit against the Federation. What were you experiencing as a player that were causing enough issues to go beyond just, you know, complaining? We all have things in life that we don't like, you know, whether it's in work, a job or whatever, and you go, man, I wish this would change or I wish this. But it takes something to go, you know, deep, to go beyond that to a place where you're willing and and wanting to say, hey, enough is enough. This is beyond like, I don't like the flavor of coffee you put in the break room. This is a real issue. So what is a player were you experiencing that drove you to run for president and then continue that fight for for women and and really quite frankly for everyone in this country to be treated equally by the federation well daniel oh goodness i think i've had a number of different people therapists psychologists sports writers you name it try to figure out what makes me me <laughs> and try to try to figure out um why I'm willing to take such sacrifice and stand on principle when in this day and age, it's oftentimes very difficult to do. And it's oftentimes not the, the popular thing to do to stand on principle. We all, we all want to believe that um, standing on principle is something that we all should do, but when it comes right down to it, it can affect our livelihoods. It can affect our jobs. It can affect um, the way people perceive us, whether that's being difficult or outspoken or, uh, you know, somebody they don't really want to deal with. Um, so I, I don't think there's really one answer um, on why I am the way I am. I would have to go way back into my childhood to really address those issues. I think, um, you know, being raised by very strong women, my mother and my grandmother had a lot to do with it. Um, I was raised to think that equality was 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 very normal. Um, I always sp spoke out about the things that I saw was unequal or unfair, even as, as a young girl. Um, and I never thought of it as activism. It wasn't this, this new age thing. It wasn't um, in popular culture. You know, feminism right now and equality is all um, in vogue right now. You see it in television and movies right now. You see it in Hollywood. You see it in our fight in sports. But it really hasn't been popular for too long. So I was always seen as the difficult one, the asshole. Um, and then I realized it, activism is so much bigger than just standing for something. You have to be willing to actually do something about it. So what I see in this day and age, even though it's so in vogue to be an activist or to be pro-woman, um, people aren't doing enough. You know, people are wearing equality t-shirts when they get off the bus. Um, but, but what are they actually doing to fight for it? And I think that goes um, a little bit deeper because as a player, you know, I've been on the team for so long. Um, and I actually came on the team after the height of the 1999 World Cup. I came in in that same year at the end of 1999. And I saw the way the women could be treated every day, you know, long term throughout the years. As we build the game, as we build sport, they were treated like rock stars. We were staying in fantastic hotels we had security uh taking us to the airport we had we were protected and and we were treated with respect because of what the 1999 team did well right going in right after the 2000 olympics 
things went back to no security. Things went back to flying uh, in the middle seats in the very back of the airplane. We started to practice at high school fields again. So even though 1999 was very pivotal, U.S. soccer took that year, took uh, the 2000 Olympics, and then they decided, well, they don't need to spend money on the women anymore because it's not a World Cup year. It's not an Olympic year. And so we saw everything. So I saw what it could be. And then suddenly I saw how U.S. soccer really wanted to treat the women. And, and then it was just, it was the same thing over the course of, you know, probably a decade and a half where we had to fight for better doctors, fight for better trainers. We had to spend energy on things, quite frankly, we, we should not have been spending energy on. And I think it just, you know, I was always behind the scenes speaking up. I was always a thorn in U.S. soccer's side asking them, you know, why aren't we traveling first class like the men travel first class or like the men actually travel on, on charters? And I'd, I'd ask all of these questions and I'd be told, you know, Hope, just this is above your pay grade, you know, just get in the gold and, and save some balls. But you're asking these questions that are above your pay grade. And I can't tell you how many times I just got played to the left. I couldn't get an answer. I couldn't get any reasoning on, see, I was a part of four different CBA negotiations. And we were told time and time and time again that if we want um, a CBA that is similar to the men's contract, then it is a non-starter for negotiations. So this went on and on and on for four CBA negotiations. So we're talking, let's see, we're going on two decades now. And so it really all came to a head. Um, I think U.S. soccer got pretty much sick and tired of me. I led the way for our fight for equality um, in the lawsuit in 2015. And then shortly thereafter, I was fired, as we all know, in 2016. But... You know, U.S. Soccer says my firing was for calling Sweden cowards. Um, but what nobody knows is I had actually sent an email to U.S. Soccer right before we went to Brazil asking where the money was going with Soccer United Marketing because we had just put out these video vignettes um, and we were told that they would not be sold commercially. And we found out right before the Brazil Olympics that they were sold. And so I'd asked them, well, how come you know, you guys are making money off of us and we're not seeing a dime out of it. And shortly thereafter, I was fired. As soon as I talked about Soccer United Marketing, I was fired. Soccer United Marketing, for anyone who doesn't know, is a second company owned by MLS owner-operators. So they own Major League Soccer, but they also own a second company called Soccer United Marketing, and it's that vehicle that is used to uh, partner with directly with the U.S. Soccer Federation. They are in business together through this company, Soccer United Marketing, and uh, we could spend the rest of the show going down uh, that mm -hmm. rabbit hole. But just suffice to say that uh, that element is influential on decision-making, financial arrangements. It, it is a no-bid contract that was awarded to Major League Soccer through the, this secondary company, Soccer United Marketing, that Hope is, is alluding to in, in terms of this specific incident. But it influences a lot of uh, issues uh, within U.S. soccer. So you, you get released from the, the program, from the team essentially fired from 
the U.S. Women's National Team, and, and they are also heavily, you know, in, involved in uh, the NWSL as well. And and so, what kind of from from that point, what at that at that level said, okay, enough is enough. I'm going to take this this fight to someone else who can actually do something about it if you're not going to do something about it i'm going to take it to somebody who can so at what point did you make that decision to challenge u.s soccer directly well we're probably talking about two different lawsuits but real quick let me give you the the history on uh the federal lawsuit the equal pay lawsuit which is so important to so many different people um, that lawsuit we actually filed with the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is a government agency. We filed that back in 2015, um, shortly after we won the World Cup. And the EEOC had sat on our case for two years with no meaningful action. We filed just after um, the change in the administration. Um, and really, the EEOC just did not have a lot of resources or support. Uh, financial support to, to see our case through. Um, so at that point, I realized I cannot put my faith right now into the EEOC. Um, so I, in fact, officially filed my federal lawsuit um, under Title VII in the Equal Pay Act about now, almost a year ago now. So I became the first athlete to, to file a federal lawsuit under the Equal Pay Act. Uh, we've had a couple court hearings in regards to that. The team the current U.S. Women's National Team filed um, about 10 months after me. Um, so they, too, have a federal lawsuit against U.S. soccer. Um, so this, this is huge. You know, this, this can hopefully change the landscape of our future generations, um, especially women in sport. And hopefully, if there's no settlement, I mean, we'll have to see what happens. Um, and U.S. soccer, I'm not sure they want to settle. Um, I'm not sure. Uh the tactic they're going to play in the in this game, but Carlos Cadero could be the hero. He could look at this and say, "Okay, <laughs> the Equal Pay Act was filed in 1963. The men and the women—it's simple, it's black and white. They do not get paid equally. I can be the hero right now, and I'm going to make these contracts equal moving forward." So Carlos Cadero really has an opportunity to do something significant for the sport, to do something significant for women and for the future of the sport. And yet he has still refused to do anything in regards to these federal lawsuits. Um, do I think there's going to be a settlement? We'll see. We'll see if they get scared down the road. Otherwise, if it goes all the way to the federal judges, then perhaps we can set a precedent moving forward for all female athletes. And ultimately, that is, that's what we want to do. That's personally what I want to do. So we'll have to see what happens in regards to that. With my other complaint with U.S. Soccer, um, the Ted Stevens Act, and I'm not sure your audience is aware of the two different lawsuits, but just recently we had a huge win in the courts um, through <clears throat> three different arbitrators who found U.S. soccer unanimously, unanimously in violation of the Ted Stevens Act. Now, this is huge for us because the Ted Stevens Act um, is the Amateur Athlete Act, and uh, it gives athletes their, their rights. And these arbitrators basically stated that U.S. soccer is in violation of, of these athletes' rights. Um, they are not using 20% athletes on their decision-making, which is policy for every national governing body, which is federal law under the Ted Stevens Act. And U.S. soccer is not using 
20% athlete representation to make major decisions within the organization. So, so this is a crucial step moving forward, um, which means we will now have a hearing to address all of the issues that going back to the election and speaking to all of the state associations and all the voting delegates, some of the main concerns were the fact that we are alienating so many people in the soccer world through the rising costs of youth sport, through alienating you know, our, our Hispanic, our Latino, our black communities and making soccer very much a rich white kid sport. We are not giving enough funds to the Paralympic team, to the adult leagues, to the U.S. deaf team, everybody that falls under amateur soccer in America. U.S. soccer is so focused on professional soccer, meaning the MLS, meaning the men's and the women's national team, that they are neglecting the rest of, of their constituents. They're neglecting the amateur soccer in America. And a national governing body must support all aspects of soccer in America. So now we get to move forward and we get to have a hearing in regards to all of these issues. I, I want to make a quick point on something you just talked about in terms of priorities uh, within the Federation. I think the American audience is, by and large, from a, from a general public standpoint, may not realize that when you, when you grow up in Germany and you go to register and play for your local team, you know, in your neighborhood, you're, you register directly with the German National Federation. Now, they, they have, you know, uh, state offices and, and they have, you know, local offices, etc. But when you get your, you know, player ID card in Germany or Spain or England, you are registering directly with your national governing body. In U.S. soccer... When when Hope talks about how they they you know you bring up the fact that the the federation is not addressing these other issues, U.S. soccer has effectively completely outsourced everything other than the the points that you've talked about MLS, the U.S. women's national team, the U.S. men's national team, etc. If you're not a national team or you know a, a professional, they've basically said. Okay, we're, you can go and just do whatever you want under U.S. youth soccer, U.S. club soccer, U.S.S.A., etc., and and have you know really taken that stance in in into the way that they govern, and it caused it has caused so many issues unnecessarily just from bad leadership and um, and, and that neglect uh, has carried over, and it has had. Uh, uh, issues with access, with opportunity, whether you're an amateur youth player or even an aspiring club that wants to play professional, you, it, it's very, very difficult to do and, uh, and to find your way and, and to stay viable because of the way that the Federation has created this environment. So looking at your case, both of these cases, um, if, if you were able to, to – you know, say, here's what I want to see in the end from a resolution standpoint. What would you hope to, to get out of these cases uh, as a kind of a precedent going forward for the rest of American soccer? Well, I think, as I said, with the equal pay lawsuit, I, I do want to set, just like you said, a precedent moving forward. Um, once we set a precedent, then that's going to change the landscape for all 
female athletes, not just soccer players, but female athletes in this country. So that is the, the end goal. Um, it's going to take probably many years to get there. Um, probably, you know, lots, lots of money that personally I don't have to continue pushing these lawsuits forward, but we have a great team of people and we're doing our best and, and the law is on our side. The law and the facts are on our side. So, you know, oftentimes it's, it's, it's a lot of work. Um, I've read too many legal documents in, in the last year or so, um, spoke to way too many attorneys, but we are dedicated to the fight, dedicated to the cause. And, you know, I think we need, it's difficult, you know, it's, it's difficult because U.S. soccer has a lot of sports journalists that are in their pocket. Um, you know, unfortunately they, it's a relationship where let's say it's, you know, Grant Wall, um, he needs to be in the good graces of U.S. soccer in order to cover U.S. soccer. So it's a mutually beneficial relationship. But then you, you see somebody who perhaps is a great journalist like Grant Wall not do the diligence to let the general public know this fight that we are, are struggling, um, that we're struggling with. But also he's not, he's not really making it clear what U.S. soccer is doing. So it's difficult where we have an uphill battle because we need the public sentiment. But how do we get public sentiment when a lot of journalists won't really touch this topic because they need to be in the good graces of U.S. soccer? So it's 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 very it's very difficult. Um, we're trying to make uh, more intellectual friends, and and we have a lot of those intellectual friends who write about the topic, but it's not the mainstream media. And, and that's been really difficult to overcome. Um, yeah, I mean, I, like I said, I'm hopeful we have really difficult days. Sometimes I feel like I'm, I'm all alone in this fight and in the struggle. Um, but I, I know that the law is on our side and I know that we have the facts on our side, but it's just going to continue to be kind of an uphill battle that we just have to keep trudging and trudging along. So. I encourage anybody listening right now, we need public sentiment, whether that's through social media, but these topics cannot just silently go away. We need to continue to discuss them. We need to continue to educate people. Um, and, and hopefully, <laughs> maybe after the World Cup, we'll get some of these sports journalists on our side to continue to educate the public as well. I think that's what, what's most important because public sentiment right now is everything. I, I agree, and uh, it's actually right after the election, um, the results came out and uh, things fell the way they fell, and, and Carlos Cordero won the election. I went out into the lobby and met with uh, you know some people in, in, involved in the election, and, and basically we, we discussed kind of where do we go from here, and one of the things that we talked about, um, and this is like, moments after that result um so everybody was you know it was fresh the wounds were were fresh <laughs> everyone was licking their wounds and and frustrated and exasperated there was a lot of um you know passionate back and forth about what do we do how, where do we go from here do we do we do we all just give up and walk away and and let them win and and or, or do we try to figure out a way forward um you are continuing to fight that that battle forward um, and there are, uh, even though I know you may feel like you're alone at, at times, there are a lot of us who support your efforts and your work and are rooting for you and, and, and definitely, um, want to see what you're fighting for come to fruition. 
one of the things we talked about in that moment was the media. And uh, so this show is, is actually a little bit of a, a, a response or part of that uh, ins- inspiration came from that moment where we were all discussing where do we go from here, uh, knowing that the American soccer media isn't going to cover some of the, the hard topics um, and, and do so freely uh, because, you know, paychecks depend on it or executives. And, the, and it goes back, you know, we mentioned this a few moments ago about Soccer United Marketing. Because of the relationship that U.S. soccer and Major League Soccer have through Soccer United Marketing with their broadcast partners, there is a lot of influence there. And and so they they basically are are unafraid to call up an ESPN or a Fox and say, look, we don't we don't like the way this is being discussed or we want this discussed this mm-hmm. way. Uh, there's not a lot of independence when it comes to that coverage. And so, you know, if you're a journalist out there and you're trying to figure out how to, you know, to, to, to keep a, a job in the industry, sometimes it, you, you get faced with a very difficult choice, um, just like, you know, you've been faced with difficult choices. And, and so one of the things that I, I looked at was how can I help? How can, and how can I and others kind of do something maybe that's independent and not have to be bound by that and figure out a way forward to support efforts like yours that uh, needs uh, to be told the stories that need to be told and covered. And uh, which leads me to this, which is, is some really good things, positive things, exciting things for you as you are getting ready to leave <laughs> to go to France and um, and cover the the Women's World Cup that's t- taking place <laughs> this summer. Uh, you're going to be working uh, for the BBC covering the U.S. games, uh, plus a lot of the, the big matches as well. Um, and I think you're also doing some uh, contributions and writing guest columnist with The Guardian. So tell us a little bit about that and what you're looking forward to uh, in, in terms of covering this World Cup coming up here at the end of the week. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I did a little bit of coverage with the Men's World Cup in Ireland, and I was <laughs> I was ill-prepared and a little bit nervous because I had taken a good amount of time away from football after being fired and, and throughout the election. And, and I, I really just focused on my own lifestyle that, that, you know, Jeremy and I moved from Seattle to North Carolina. We are living now in kind of the country and homesteading and building our home. And, and it's a completely different lifestyle than, than ours in Seattle. And I really just uh, kind of just focused on, on myself and, and that huge move for us. And so going into the men's World Cup, I was, I was pretty ill-prepared, but I got a taste of commentating. Um, and I can always fall back on being honest and, 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 that I think sometimes has gotten me in trouble and other times it's what makes me successful. So I'm going to stay true to who I am. I'm going to be honest. I'm going to call it as I see it. And I think that's probably, probably why um, U S soccer and Fox do not want me commentating for, for the American team, (laughs) but I'm pretty excited to be working with BBC because it's, it's very much about the game. It's less about all of the, you know, the, the circus surrounding the game, the outside circumstances, the, you know, the showmanship and the commercials and, and, and the politics. And it's more about the purity of the game. So I'm so excited to be commentating for BBC. I'm going to go in there. I'm going to read the game as I see it. I'm going to be myself. And, and I'm excited. And taking those, you know, two to three years away from the game, 
it, it has really kind of uh, reinvigorated me to return to the game without any, you know, I, I've seen many of my former teammates retire and then go straight into commentating. And there's something, there's something missing. There might be a little bit of, uh, I mean, a little bit of, they weren't ready to, to return to the game. And, and you can, you, you can tell and you can see it. There might be a little, even, even jealousy that they're still not on the field. Um, but I feel like I'm in such a good place to return to the game, to go to France, to, to just really unbiasedly look at the game and, and enjoy it. I mean, I'm in France and at the women's world cup, we're going to have incredible packed stadiums, you know, grass fields. It's, it's everything a women's world cup should be. And it's everything Canada, uh, was not for us. So it's, it's really exciting to be able to be a part of it. Um, cause truly this is, this is the direction women's sports should be headed and anything less than what France is going to host, um, honestly, shouldn't it be acceptable by FIFA and it shouldn't have been acceptable by FIFA in Canada. Um, so I'm, I'm proud of France. I'm proud of the organizing committee and I'm proud to be a part of BBC. So looking at the, the world cup, uh, and the the teams that are going to be competing the 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 national teams are going to be there what do you see obviously the u.s women's national team traditional powerhouse um the the reigning world champions uh world cup cup champions uh who are the favorites what are what are you in, in your preparation for this world cup what are you seeing as some of the the favorite teams and and uh any any storylines that you're you're observing or you know watching as you're getting ready yeah um well the united states they have um you know a fairly easy group um they will get through the group no problem um and that that could be good or bad to be honest because all of a sudden they might play one of the top teams come to quarterfinals if all goes well they're going to meet france in the quarterfinals in Paris. And I think that is going to be one of the, well, one of the most epic games possibly France versus the United States in France at the world cup in the quarterfinals. So that's really the game I'm looking forward to. Um, the U S I mean, it can go either way, obviously playing for Jill Ellis and, and playing for that team for so long. I know Jill's not the leader we all had hoped her to be, um, but we still win and we still win in spite of that. And we still win, uh, because we often are the most athletic team, the most the, the fittest team, and we we have individual greatness, especially with the with our forwards, um, our our attacking players are are some of the best attacking players in the world. Um, but I always say defense wins tournaments, and great goalkeeping wins tournaments. You cannot win a major tournament without a great goalkeeper. So I, I think I think it's going to be a major test for you. For the United States defensively, um, and I'm not sure they're going to go all the way. Right now, if I was a betting person, which I am, <laughs> um, but I am not betting this World Cup, mind you, I would be putting my money on France. I think France, although they do not have some of the caliber players that the United States does, um, they they play like a team and they pass the ball around and they have movement off the ball and they attack in numbers and they are just a very very difficult team to stop and it's it's you know i just hope they don't succumb to any of the the pressure of hosting the world cup in their home country but i truly think that they're the team to beat this tournament well all eyes will be 
on France uh, in in the, the the month of June, going into July. Uh, I, I love whenever we get to the, the the World Cup cycles because you get them back to back. You get a men's uh, World Cup in in 2018, and we come right back with the women's World Cup in 2019. <laughs> And uh, so I love the cycle uh, and, and really looking forward to um, your coverage this summer as well as the tournament itself and, uh, and, and really appreciate you coming on the show. How can people follow your story, follow your work, um, follow you know, all of the efforts that you are involved in as well? Well, I will be posting everything. Um, I will be active on social media this tournament, which oftentimes I'm not very active. Uh, but I'll be doing videos. I'll be giving my game analysis. I'll be doing my pre- and post-game. Uh, my players at the game, I'll be doing videos through Bleacher Report for the American media. Um, but otherwise, I you know, I recommend for, you know, for some of the games, um, I think the American audience, yeah, it's great to tune into Fox, but, I, I, you know, you're going to get all of the side stories and the emotional stories and the kind of the circus acts surrounding the game. But if you really want to see some some soccer-specific coverage, um, some intellectual coverage. I, I really encourage the American audience to also tune in, tune into BBC's coverage of the games because um, it's it's first class and it's very professionally done. So you can follow me on my my social media and I'll I'll um, I'll send all of those links out. But um, tune into BBC because I think they're going to broadcast a great tournament. Well, we will definitely do that. I know I will do be doing that, and uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. Uh, l- let's not wait a year to catch up uh, going forward. Uh, but I do wish you the best of luck with your cases and and your coverage uh, of this uh, World Cup coming up. Uh, it's starting at the end of this week in France. So, uh, thanks for coming on the show, Hope. We really do appreciate it. Oh, Daniel, thank you for everything, and and I just want to really, you know, thank you for all all the work that you've done, and even with this podcast, just keeping people informed. Um, it doesn't go overlooked, and we need to stay in it together. So let's continue keeping up the good fight. Thank you. We'll we'll absolutely do, and look forward to having you back on again, maybe after the World Cup, and you can give us a recap, and uh, maybe by then we'll have even more updates on some other things. So thanks for coming on the oh, show. That'd be wonderful. Awesome. Of course. Sounds good. Take care. Enjoy. Bye bye. That was Hope Solo, who uh, stopped by the show. I'd like to thank her for coming on and, um, and, and spending some, some time with us talking about her, her background in the game, her covering of this coming World Cup, as well as her court cases, uh, fighting the fight for equal pay and equal treatment. And that's, that's a, a bigger lesson here, an issue. It's not just about pay. It's about the treatment as well. And... Um, she has been courageous in that effort, and you should definitely, um, if you ever run into her, thank her because uh, it is it is a selfless thing that she is doing, working for the next generation. She's not getting anything from this going forward. Uh, she's fighting this fight for the next generation of young girls in this country. So uh, I'd like to thank her for coming on the show. The sponsor for this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water by going to charitywater.org. They provide clean drinking water to people all over this country. Uh, I mean, excuse me, all over the world. And, um, and they do so by, by changing villages and changing people and bringing clean drinking water. Learn more th- about them at charitywater.org. We will be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs 
with algae with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Right, you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Welcome back into the show. So we wind up today's show, June 3rd, getting ready for the World Cup, excited. Um, we heard Hope's comments about the team to watch, the team to beat. She predicts is going to be France, and I concur it's going to be a tough match for the U.S. Women's National Team. We've, we've definitely got the players and the talent, but uh, do we have the ability to beat them on their home soil? We will see. One of the things about the the women's game is that is really exciting is we are starting to see other countries around the world really start to take the game serious, put resources, investments, um, priorities placed on being uh, you know a, a a big deal, and we're seeing. In Italy, we're seeing in Spain, we're seeing in France, crowds, England, crowds are, are coming to matches. The, the attention is um, coming for, uh, for, for these players, for these national teams, for these matches. And uh, it, it, is, it is really, really exciting to see and to get to watch a World Cup where the, the women's matches are all going to be played on grass, in great stadiums, the football infrastructure that is there for uh, the men's and the women's games, uh, in, in particular this summer with the women's national team matches, is is really, really uh, good. And it's a, it is a good um, moment for the women's game. And, uh, and I, I look forward to following, you know, the, the storylines uh, and the, in these national teams uh, in their efforts to win this World Cup. In the past... Because of our laws, Title IX specifically, provided a lot of opportunity where we got a head start on the world and, we, and women's college soccer and everything kind of fed our women's national team where there were a lot of other countries that weren't putting a lot of resources there. Now that has changed and we are seeing countries that have put time and money and interest in and in, into and priori prioritizing the women's game as well. And so now we're seeing over the, the, the last five, 10 years and, and going forward, countries like Japan, countries like um, you know France and Germany and England who are, are, are creating uh, really, really competitive teams, national teams, and are, are doing so um, in a, 
um, in a way where where it's not just about a player or two. It it is a cultural thing. So you're seeing the uh, the teams that are being developed in these footballing cultures are are playing with an identity and a and a in a culture. And and so one of the things that that Hope highlighted there about her, you know, if, if she had to pick right now, she would pick France. Um, came down to the fact of the way that they play. They pass the ball around. They play as a team, and 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 that culture is definitely evident uh, on the on the men's side. It's evident on the women's side as well. And um, so it'll be it'll be fascinating to watch this summer. I look forward over uh, the 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 next uh, four, five, six weeks to see this Women's World Cup play out and uh, to see if the U.S. Women's National Team can defend their um, their World Cup. Um, so it, 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 is, uh, it is always fun to be in World Cup cycles. So 2018 with the men's, we come right back, 2019 with the women's. And then uh, once we, we close this down, we, you know, next summer we get uh, the, the Euros. And uh, so it's, it seems like almost every summer we have a, a great tournament to watch this summer. We also have Copa America um, that is uh, taking place down in South America. That uh, is another great uh, tournament to follow and to watch uh, as well. And so uh, th- this time of year, it's different than the club season, but it is it is definitely um, a, a great, entertaining uh, time to watch. We have CONCACAF Gold Cup that's that's taking place uh, as well, a tournament that is not quite on the level of Copa America or certainly not on the level of the Women's World Cup that the senior team, the U.S. national team, will be competing in as well. So, you know, busy uh, fixture schedule uh, coming up for the TV viewing audience, but uh, find a game somewhere, turn it on, watch it, watch it with your sons, watch it with your daughters, and uh, I- enjoy the game and pass on the culture uh, of soccer. That's one of the things that we, uh, as American soccer fans, uh, you know, need to continue doing, which is is preparing the next generation, imparting into the next generation a true soccer culture, watching games rooting for players, picking teams, you know, going back to the start of the show, watching teams like Liverpool or Tottenham. Uh, I have a, a friend of mine who who has two sons and and each root for uh one one of those teams. So one's a Liverpool fan, the other one's a Tottenham fan and and to hear about how the 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 son who's a Tottenham fan was was upset at at the outcome of the game and wanted a different result and uh you know that's that's healthy that's good and that that's that feeling that you get around the world and we need more of that in american soccer homes uh, all over this country so thanks for tuning into the show thanks uh for for watching the show um like to uh, thank hope solo for coming on uh today uh, also for uh welcome aboard our, our new sponsor dut kick brand you can find uh, more information about dut kick brand at d-u-t-k-i-g brand.com also charity water in their work so thanks for tuning into the show thanks for watching each and every weekday at 9 a.m eastern and uh, as always, you can find more information or connect with me on social media at Daniel Workman on Instagram 
on Twitter or at facebook.com forward slash WRKMN. This show will be out uh, for you to watch or to listen to later today and to send to friends. I, I would love for you to do that. And also send me any comments uh, that you uh, thought about the show or, you know, like about the show or ideas for guests or whatever. Uh, reach out. Love to love to chat with you. And, uh, you know, look, we all have to keep fighting the good fight and hope that we can get to a place where American soccer is treating everyone with dignity and respect and inequality that's men's and women's that's also clubs that's organizations everyone having the opportunity to rise on sporting merit as well so thanks for tuning into the show uh again thanks for hope for coming on the show and look forward to, to chatting with her again in the near future and uh we have a busy busy show busy lineup this week and um it's going to be it's going to be a good week so see everyone tomorrow 9 a.m eastern standard time at danielwerbin.com goodbye everybody <laughs>